Every year we learn there's, there's a new dieting program, a new medication, new motivational videos, new therapies, new surgeries, new yoga techniques, new personality profiles, new sort of tips for maximizing your potential, for unleashing your hidden talents. And that's just this year. And just add those to the endless parade of previous year's methodologies and tips and strategies for self-improvement, for making you a better you. And all of these promise change, sometimes radical change, deep change. And so it seems to be as a people that human beings are interested in change, at times obsessed with change, obsessed with being different, with selling something to people that will change them, help them, grow them. But as we would understand it, the God who reveals himself in the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the God who creates and then recreates, who condemns and then redeems, who tears down, who builds up. is actually the only being in the universe with the wisdom, with the power, with the grace to actually change people, to actually transform them for the better. In fact, we could even say that transforming people is his special work. It's his exclusive work. It's sort of the, the dominion and jurisdiction that he claims as his own, kind of like creation. It's like creation, it's his to create. It's his to judge and condemn. It's also his to recreate. It's his to transform for the better, especially when we consider changing human hearts, the inner person, the seat of our affections, the seat of our cognitions, the seat of our will and our attitudes and our volition and our actions. God is the only one, as we've established for these last couple of months, the only one who really sees us, who really understands us, who really comprehends what we need can really provide what we need, let alone change and transform us along the way. And he begins that process we talked about a couple weeks ago by giving us a new heart in Christ, by giving his spirit to bring new birth, to be born again through union with Christ. And that that expresses itself in genuine faith and repentance. That's what we talked about last week. That the, the primary, the first expressions of that, of that new birth, is tears, sorrow over sin, turning from sin, trusting in Christ, and then living by faith after being justified by faith. But then what we're going to look at this morning is that's not where the process starts. This just begins the process of transformation and change. So let's think back again on Amanda and Matthew that we talked about a few weeks ago. Amanda, a fictitious 19-year-old woman, recently dumped by her boyfriend, goes home to, to binge on food, on carbohydrates, to, to vomit as a means to kind of feel control, to deal with pain, to escape. Social relationships with her are, are off and on, hot and cold, just worried about performance, worried about pleasing people, not displeasing people. A teenage boy had mistreated her, molested her some 10 years before on occasion in her neighborhood, and she never told anyone, just kind of carries that shame, that guilt, that fear, that anxiety. She once tried using a Ouija board with a group of friends, 
And just after that experience, it's now wondered, okay, did that bring all these demons, all this darkness into my life that I can't control? Talked about how she's a Gemini and a strong one nine on the Enneagram. And so reads a lot on that about, okay, maybe this is why I am the way I am. Maybe this is gonna be the key to helping me change. A psychiatrist once diagnosed her with obsessive compulsive disorder. So you think this way, you feel this way, you live this way because you have this disease. She's a new follower of Jesus Christ. So she's reading lots of books on depression, on anxiety, on how do I get better? How do I improve? How do I change? But it's just sort of a hodgepodge of explanations, a hodgepodge of answers. Matthew, a fictitious 37-year-old man, divorced about seven years ago after a two-year marriage, thought marriage to a woman would curb his attraction to men, but it didn't. Tries to ignore it, just vows to stay single and lonely. Tends to be guarded in his relationships, though he hates to be alone. Wants to sort of be close to people, but is deeply insecure, deeply worried about what they think, deeply worried about how they're going to respond to him if they really knew him. Churches don't feel safe, so he just kind of stays on the periphery. He plays around with porn as a means to seek pleasure, but also to escape. Drinks a couple of glasses of wine every night just to take the edge off life to try to calm down so he can go to bed. Binges on Netflix 10 hours at a time. Successful in his career, though, as a financial planner, only child. Parents to feel, tend to feel pretty sorry for him. Mom calls him every day just to check in to make sure he's okay. They invite him to anytime he wants to move back home and just be there and their home, and he's welcome to. They want him to feel loved and know he has, always has a place to come. But also Matthew, a new believer, wondering, okay, how do I get out of these ditches, these ruts? How do I change? So if both Amanda and Matthew are genuinely born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit through union with Christ, display evidences of true faith and repentance in these early days, then how might they grow in respect to salvation? That's the question we're going to try to answer this morning. How do they grow? Are they supposed to grow? Does scripture have anything additional to say to them besides just repent and believe and then you're finished? Just that one-time act, just get saved, you're converted, now you're done. Does the gospel have more to give? I think we would all argue, of course, most certainly. There's more scripture has to give, more God intends to do. More riches, more promises, more power, more wisdom, new mercies every morning. Still greater depth to their knowledge of God, to knowing God, to being conformed to the image of God. New sort of heights to, for him to help them climb in loving God and loving others and being more self-forgetting, more joyful, more peaceful, more content. All kinds of application of the gospel to their lives. It's like if you, again, think about the conception of a baby in the womb. Like, is a father at that moment supposed to go, okay, my work's done? Or when that child is brought into the world and given birth, is the mom supposed to go, okay, well, my, my job's finished. Or is that, that child coming into the world as a newborn is fully human, but we would never say fully grown. We would never say there's, there's nothing more to give. There's nothing more to happen. And in the same way, when you're born again by the Spirit of God, when you're a new creation in Christ, you're fully a Christian. You're fully justified in Christ. You're fully His. You're fully secure, but you're not full grown. You haven't arrived. It's just beginning the process at that point of spiritual growth or what we would call sanctification. 
being set apart by God in Christ to be conformed to the image of Christ for his glory. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ produces through the Holy Spirit ongoing transformation and sustaining of our hearts and lives. Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He'll do it. He's going to go on to say in Philippians 2, which is going to be the verse that's going to structure our time this morning. Philippians 2.12, if you want to turn there with me. The Apostle Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And think about that, as you have always obeyed. Do you think he means like you've never done anything wrong since you believed? Or does he mean, no, you, since you've, in my presence, you've believed, you've obeyed the gospel in turning from sin and trusting in Christ. That work of belief, of faith, of obedience has happened not in my presence only, but much more in my absence, meaning this is not just about responding to Paul. This is something that God has done in them. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here's why. He says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And those are the two sides I want us to talk about. It's God who's at work in you both the will and the work for his good pleasure. Therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Respond to that thing that God is doing in you and around you. And that that's going to actually produce a kind of growth and sanctification. So those are the two sides I want us to look at. God at work in you and upon you and around you. But then also, okay, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Any questions before we jump in? Any initial thoughts or comments just as we go? All right, well, God at work in you and around you and upon you, that the basis for our confidence in both Amanda and Matthew growing, like if you're called now to, to care for them, to disciple them, if you're a brother who's gonna sit with Matthew week after week or a sister who's gonna sit with Amanda week after week, what's gonna be your confidence for them changing? What's going to be your confidence for them growing? Is it going to be, okay, this week, man, I've got some wisdom to lay on you. Like, is it, oh, you, you won't believe. Like, Ephesians is like my backyard. Watch me walk you through this. And you'll, I mean, there'll be glory. Things will, angels will sing, things will descend. What's our confidence to them growing, changing, being conformed to the image of Christ? It's the truth that God is at work in them, that God is at work around them, that God is going to use, including you. You're part of that work that God's going to do around them. Is his word working through you, his wisdom through you. And that's why it's so important that we understand, okay, what is, what is God promised to be doing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So just the Father is at work in them and around them. That first and foremost, sanctification is a work of God the Father. Think about these words in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That if you sit down to minister to Amanda, that there's your confidence 
that you know that God the Father is sanctifying her. And what's the word? Completely. He will use everything in her life for her good. Everything around her and that he's doing in her to conform her to the image of Jesus completely over time. In other words, there's not a whole lot we have to add. Rather, we have to submit ourselves to his hand in, his, in her life. The Father is working for her whole spirit, her whole soul, whole body to be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's the Father who's making her holy. The Father who has set her apart for his work. The Father who's working in her to accomplish all his marvelous purposes. And those aren't purposes that we can improve upon. They're not purposes that sometimes even that we can figure out the timing of or exactly how he's doing it, only that he's doing it. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. That's going to be an important phrase when you think about what he says next. Here's God, the father of peace who brought Jesus from the dead. The great shepherd of the sheep, meaning Jesus, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. In other words, if God the Father can raise Jesus from the grave, do you think he can give you good gifts? Do you think he has the power to actually equip you for every good work? Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. It's not always pleasing in our sight. It's not always pleasing in the sight of everybody else, but it's always pleasing in his sight what he's doing in people. And we need to remember that even as we minister to one another, as we live life with one another as a church, that whatever God is doing in the people around us, it pleases him. And we need to remember that so we're not too quick to judge, especially when it looks messy, feels messy, is difficult, hard, especially when somebody else's sanctification lands heavily on your life, which tends to happen. Sometimes the church is just like a big ball of sanctification bumper cars, just ramming and sometimes you know which side you get and, and God is doing something in everybody that is pleasing in his sight and he's using all of us even to do that right as iron sharpens iron so one man sharpens another just that image of two pieces of metal laid against one another contrary to one another against the grain of one another and then they're rubbed together to create heat and friction and then shards like get ripped off stuff gets smoothed out it's a kind of painful image. And God's saying, that's how I use each of you in each other's lives to change you. Sometimes it can feel like abrasiveness. But that's what's meant to be humbling. That's what's meant to be convicting. That's what's meant to help us run to him for help. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So you see here how Paul describes sanctification being accomplished in Amanda's life, in Matthew's life, in your life. See again how God himself is the actor. God himself is the near and present father, fathering us, caring for us, loving us. That that's who we would encourage Amanda to put her hope in, to put her trust in as she keeps trying to put hope or trust in people around her who keep disappointing her, as they're supposed to. But yet God will never disappoint. Notice too how God is called the, the God of peace. That's who God the Father is. 
as she begins to work through even mistreatment she's faced or a molestation that she's endured and the shame of that, the guilt of that, the pain of that, what does it mean for her to receive care from the father of peace, from the one who protects her, cares for her, uses those things in mysterious ways to draw her nearer to him, to care for her, who speaks to her through her, his word, to equip her, look at what it says, for everything good, that she may accomplish his will and pleasure. So that she can open up Psalm 22, David, okay, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just all the abuses that he's endured and actually be given a way for her to talk to God. Be given a road to go along to, to actually receive grace from God and understand what God is doing in trial. That just, that's just one Psalm she could walk through and hear God speaking. Give her words to speak. Help her in this conversation with this father of peace that is her father. Yes, Psalm 119 just can be given words to, to strengthen her, to encourage her. So the father is at work in you, around you, for you, and often uses the body of Christ and other believers to do that. And that's why sanctification doesn't just happen with one thing. There's many things. Many graces, many areas that God sort of reaches us through. But also God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, also plays a role in our sanctification. We can even say sanctification is also a work of the Son. We just read it in Hebrews 13 that he is the great shepherd of the sheep. He leads us, he cares for us, he protects us. Or consider Ephesians 5, 25 and 26 where a marriage relationship, Paul's going to explain, portrays the relationship between Christ and the church and how Christ brings about her sanctification. Listen to this in Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her. So he gave himself for her in order to sanctify her, to set her apart and then to change her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So Jesus' love for us, his love for the church is characterized by laying down his life for our redemption, laying down his life to sanctify us in order to cleanse us by the washing of his word. And what that means is, okay, only Jesus can really help Amanda be cleansed by the washing of his word. Only Jesus can really help Matthew be redeemed, be changed, be conformed to his own image. And whatever we're doing to care for them has to be submitted to his work. It has to be oriented around his work. It has to be thinking about and paying attention to the work that Christ is doing, the work that Christ has done, and how the implications of his life, death, and resurrection actually connect to the details of each of their lives. How Jesus actually wants to change the very things that Matthew's attracted to. Think about it, does it get more basic than that? The idea that God will change what you find attractive. God will change what you find repulsive. Because before Christ intervened, we were attracted to stuff we shouldn't have been attracted to. And we were repelled by things we shouldn't have been repelled by. Sanctification changes all that. Sanctification teaches us, here's what attractive is. Here's what beauty is. Have you ever thought about that? That God can actually change what you find beautiful, what you find glorious, what you find worthy of adoration. 
Too many, and we live in a culture that just thinks that's just hardwired in. You can't, that can't be changed. Let alone, you know, the, while we would agree with the world, yeah, you can't really control it in, a, in your own hands, but you can submit to a person who can change it. And so much of the Christian life is learning what real beauty is, learning what real glory is, learning what real value, real worth is. Because most of us don't realize in life that all that's upside down in our world. God's going to say to Adam and Eve, of all the trees of the garden, you can eat freely. They weren't getting a bad deal. Just this one. And so their failure wasn't just a failure in eating the wrong tree. It was refusing to be satisfied in all the other ones God gave, which were many. And I promise by the day they ate of that fruit of the, the tree, they hadn't exhausted all the other options. And that's so true for us. God's like, hey, here's all the stuff you can freely enjoy. All the stuff you can delight in, glory in, see it, the beauty of it, worship me through it. And we're like, no, I want this one thing you said I can't have. That's how the flesh rebels and resists the good that God intends. Well, in sanctification, God's, again, reclaiming all that. Sort of teaching us training us in what real glory is, real beauty is, real satisfaction is, real contentment is. Shared the story before, I had a yeah, friend who was a pastor that came down one morning early and his three and a half, four year old son was in the pantry and he, he kind of heard rustling in there and he rounds the corner and there he is and the trash can is open and he's eating the dinner from the night before that had been the leftovers that had been thrown in the trash. He's just, got his hand and he's just eating it. And so he says, son, no, what are, you, what are you doing? And of course he looks at his dad like, well, what do you think I'm doing? I mean, it's obvious what a dumb question. I'm eating breakfast. He's like, don't, don't eat that. That's trash. That's trash. We've got good food in the refrigerator. We've got good food in the pantry. We have fresh food. He said his son looks down at it, looks at him. He goes, no, I want trash. And I was like, you talk about a goldmine of an illustration as a pastor. It's like, that sums up the conversation we have with God many days. God's like, don't eat trash. Eat good food. Here's the good food. I give you good food. And we're like, I think I want the trash. And we just keep going back. And, and we think, when we think of it from this angle, we're like, oh, that's disgusting. Oh, that's, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you eat trash when there's all this good food? Well... That's the discussion we're in with God around sanctification. Or God's saying, yeah, don't eat trash, eat good food. And he's teaching us what that good food is. He's washing us with the word. Though painful events will still enter Amanda's life and Matthew's life, Jesus will never lose them, never leave them, never forsake them. So even as you sit with each of them to care for them and disciple them, you're going to be asking questions and trying to pay attention. Okay, do they really relate to Jesus as their redeemer, as their savior, as a friend, as a person they're united to, as someone they're walking with in life, someone they're listening to, someone they're talking to, or is he just sort of this distant relative that just kind of dropped a salvation grenade into their life and then hasn't been seen from since? That he's far away. He's not somebody that they talk to, think about, relate to, revolve their life around. And so understanding how the scripture says we change will affect that conversation you're having with them, the kinds of questions you're asking, 
the kinds of things you're paying attention to and listening to? Is he their refuge? That growth and fruitfulness come from abiding in Jesus. John 15, 5, I am the vine. He says, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, you can't bear fruit apart from me. You're not going to grow in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. You're not going to grow in goodness. You're not going to grow in humility. You're not going to grow in care for others. You're not going to grow in contentment and peace. You're not going to grow in strength and perseverance. None of that's going to happen apart from me. And we know this, right? We don't go out to our yard and cut off limbs on the trees so that those limbs will thrive. You know what? That limb doesn't look healthy. I'm going to cut it off so it can grow again. Now, we know that the whole life of that limb is connected to the tree. It's the moment you cut it off. It's interesting. It takes a while for the, greens, for the leaves to turn, doesn't it? Like you cut that limb off, put it on the ground, it's going to look fine for a few days. Because there's still sap in the tree or in the limb. There's still, you know, life, if you will. But it's, it's dying, its hope for life is severed. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The moment we're not abiding in him, the power is gone. It will, there'll be some gasps for life. But our real hope for change, for bearing fruit, is union with Jesus. That both Amanda and Matthew have been placed into Christ. This is a vital relationship. It's the basis for their transformation. It's the basis for them bearing fruit, this is what we're going to talk about a lot next week, is where does fruit come from? What is the fruit of a heart that is abiding in Christ, that is a new heart in Christ? Jesus atones for their sin, and you could spend hours talking to them about the meaning of that. Sin paid for, forgiveness provided. Reconciles them to God. It changes everything. And that work changes their entire reason for existing, their entire mission in life, their view of marriage, their view of sexuality, their view of their workplace, their view even of trials and trouble and pain that enters into their world. It changes all that. So it's one of the things you're going to sit as you're ministering to them and asking questions and discipling them, you're actually, okay, do they live life with a vertical orientation? Or is it just all horizontal? Is it all about what people think? Is it all about what's happening in my horizontal relationships? Is it all about what's happening in society, in culture? Or are they learning to live life, taking their cues from God? Like listening to God, talking to God, walking with God, sort of reorienting all their mission in life, all their desires and purposes around what his desires are. It's why we can live in an election season like this and not be afraid, or not be angry, or not be agitated, or not be upset. Because God reigns. God is sovereign. And there won't anybody, nobody's going to get elected that God didn't decide. Nothing goes anywhere without God deciding it. Are we meant to involve ourselves and contribute? Yes. In the same way that we're meant to contribute in other people's lives and in their sanctification. But we shouldn't mistake that to mean that we're in control. Or even that what we want is best. This is the other hard part. We, we all are firmly convinced of what's best for the world. Here's what would be really amazing for my life and your life and the whole world. And God's like, no, not really. I'm going to do it this way. 
And are we ready to receive that and go, okay, Lord, you are wise, I'm not. You're mighty, I'm not. You have a direction, because I would have never come up with the cross if I was in charge. If I was in charge, there'd be no salvation. There'd be no redemption. There'd be no new heavens and a new earth, because I would have just done it according to the logic of my own mind, which is feeble and small and doesn't see the glory of what God is doing behind everything. I mean, how it doesn't, you know, we don't see the verses, but how many passages in scripture do sort of the disciples or the prophet, whoever it was, basically come to the conclusion, well, I didn't see that coming. Well, I didn't know who's going to do that. That's why Paul is going to get to the, in Romans, and just go, you know, who's known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? <laughs> Who can tell him what to do? Who sees what he's about to, what's about to happen? Who would have known, Paul is like, that this is where this was going, that this is what God was going to do to save Jews, Gentiles, to save everybody through the cross of Christ? <clears throat> so if that's true, something so massive as the crucifixion of the Son of God, then how much more so an election cycle? How much more so just COVID? How much more all the things that are going on in our world that we can still step back and go, God, you're, you're governing it. You're mighty in it. You're using it. We have to keep repeating that to each other. We have to keep coming back because it's like we, we have a half-life on remembering this stuff of like four hours. And it just degrades down. It's why... You, know, you go to the Bible and go, wow, why does he keep repeating himself? Well, there's a reason. And it's not that he forgot he said it. It's that we forgot he said it. So he has to keep coming back to the same truths, same promises, same principles, same picture of what he's doing. And the Holy Spirit, in exactly the same way that Jesus is active and working sanctification in us, the Holy Spirit is working for our sanctification. This ought to excite all of us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are all cooperating in your salvation, in your sanctification. Who is going to resist his will? What's going to prohibit him of like glorifying you in the end? The Father, the Son, the Spirit, they're all at work in you and around you and upon you the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. And while the Spirit in us accomplishes many things, one of those things is our sanctification. That the power and work of the Holy Spirit accomplishes our sanctification. Just think about these passages, 1 Corinthians six eleven, And such were some of you, and it's quite a list. Turn there if you would, 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Again, you talk about change. The world doesn't think, there's some things on that list that the world just doesn't think changes that can be transformed. And yet here he says it, some, some, such were some of you. But what happened? Well, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In Christ, by the Spirit. That's how you used to be greedy, but you're not anymore. You used to be a homosexual, but you're not anymore. 
You should be sexually immoral, but you're not anymore. You've been washed. You're being changed and transformed. Now, there's also a lot of stuff on that list that the world doesn't think needs to change. And so that's one of the first places that God starts is showing us, actually, this needs to change. And if you've ever been, you know, into the hairdresser and you get into that discussion with them about what they think needs to change. And you're like, no, 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 here's, here's what needs to change. And the more experienced the hairdresser, the more you probably ought to listen to them. Like, no, no, trust me, this needs to change. Those eyebrows, they got to come down a notch because they're eating your face. And you can't tell because it's just you and they grow a little bit every day. Or there's something that's happening with your hair and they're like, okay, we got we to gotta curb this because this is barely legal on the streets at this point in terms of what you're allowed. And so, yeah, they see things you don't see, there's, but they first have to convince you, here's what's wrong. Here's what actually needs to change. Well, it's a million times more with God, who in his work of sanctification, he's like, okay, this, we're going to change this. And we're like, but I like it. Yeah, but it's not good. Well, but it tastes great. Yeah, but it's trash. Well, I guess I like eating trash, right? We're going to change that. I'm going to teach you a new diet, teach you to enjoy celery. I mean, as parents, how often do you have that conversation? This is good for you. And everything in your kid's body is convinced that's not true. When I eat this, nothing about this tastes like it's good for me. What tastes like it's good for me is a Kit Kat. And so you're having to teach them, no, no, here's what's in this. Here's what your body needs. Here's what change needs to be. It's even more so with God. Second Thessalonians 2.13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So when we, in our English Bibles, when we use words like by and through, we're using a word that denotes agency, sort of the means by which something is happening. And so when it says, okay, by the Spirit, through the Spirit, it's saying, okay, he's the agent. It's his power, it's his work that's changing you as you believe the word, as you behold Christ in the scriptures and glory in him and adore him and see him. The spirit changes you to be more like him. So the spirit at work inside Amanda, inside Matthew, inside you is much more powerful than a psychological diagnosis. That's why, okay, I've been diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. Okay, that's a label to describe a cluster of symptoms that's going on in her life. That's not at all a statement about the power that is at work in her, that the world doesn't understand, that the world can't comprehend. But what we know is, okay, there's a spirit at work in you that's more powerful than that. That's more powerful than what you feel you're gripped by. They don't have mental and psychological diseases. That's not how we're going to see Amanda or see Matthew. They have fleshly patterns of thinking, of feeling, of relating that can be changed by the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you ever sit with somebody who tells you, yes, you're depressed and it's a disease and this will be the rest of your life. You don't have to believe that because that's just not how God talks about you. Now, it may feel like it won't change. 
The pattern may feel very deep. The darkness may seem very strong. This may be a road you've walked in for a long time. But he says, he who begun a good work in you, he will perfect it. You will, in walking with Christ, being conformed to his image, become less depressed over time. Because you'll become more joyful over time. You'll become more hopeful over time, more content over time. That's the gospel. That's what it promises. Though slowly and perhaps painfully, the spirit can change their affections, change their attractions, change their longings, change their desires, change how they experience every event from their past. Gives them a whole new way of seeing it. I mean, how often do you see it in the scripture where God is changing someone like Peter, like Paul, like Moses, and they look back on their life with a whole new set of eyes? They're able to look back and see, oh, that's what God was doing through that. Where it's no longer this confusing, awful, overwhelming, traumatic, worthless event. But they're able to see, oh, this is actually all part of the journey that God ordained for me to bring me to himself and to conform me to his image. It gives you a whole new set of eyes to interpret your world, your past, and your present. That's what Jesus is going to say in John 16, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. And that he would say that to the disciples, it's to your advantage, disciples, that I, the Son of God in the flesh, leave and ascend. Well, why? Because if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. There's a kind of work that needs to be done in you that it's the Spirit's work to do, not my work to do. So I'm going to go away to be at the right hand and we're going to send the helper and he's going to dwell in you. He's going to convict you of things. He's going to teach you things from the word. He's going to do a kind of work in you that nobody else can emulate or imitate. Any questions, comments, thoughts before we move to the working out your salvation part? Yep, Dan. Yeah, so this kind of fear, and so the question is, so in yeah, Philippians 2 is talking about work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. And when we lose that sense of fear and trembling, that's when we tend to go for it's John at work in me, to willing to work for my good pleasure. Yeah, so, so the fear and trembling is just a way to express in a phrase just humility submitted before God. A sense of fear of God that draws us to God to trust God. It's why the fear of the Lord is this very unique thing. When you think about fear, like if you, if you see a snake, there's a rattlesnake on the path in front of you as you're walking, and you feel fear, what do you, there's one of a couple of things you're going to do. What are they? Run away. There's one, you're going to run away in fear. Or you're going to do what? Or you're going to kill it. You know, you're going to go to it, but to destroy it. Or you're going to worship it. Those are going to be the few things. And... And of course, with God, it's the kind of fear that draw, that's to worship. 
that it draws us to him, to trust him, not destroy him, to worship him, not sort of co-opt him to do my will. So when Paul says, work out your salvation with a kind of reverence for God, a kind of awe for God, a kind of trust in God, a kind of submission to God, because you know he's the one doing the work in you, and his way really is better. And his will and his pleasure is what we want. Whereas most of the fears we're going to face in the world, we're either going to run from them or run at them to destroy them. But yet in the Bible, fear is always an expression of worship. Always. You fear what you worship, and you worship what you fear. That's, that's why we're told, only fear the Lord. He's the only one that's worthy of your reverence. The only one that's worthy of your worship. Yeah. So let's consider a little bit our role in response to what God is doing. The scripture teaches that we're not merely passive recipients of sanctification. And some may even believe wrongly that the role of God in beginning our sanctification ends at our conversion. Like, again, God brings us to birth and then he's done. Or we might only look to Christ and the work will be done in us or for us. That's also common in some circles of believers, this idea that all I have to do is look at Jesus and lay there. And he'll just do all the work in me. But then others are going to wrongly believe that the whole weight of sanctification is on you. It's on me. Okay, God sort of wound you up and got you started. Now you've got to sustain it. You've got to cover the ground. That's why Paul's going to say, are you so foolish, Galatians, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now trying to perfect yourself by the flesh? Knowing that, okay, it's the Spirit who begun the work. Are you now trying to take it over? And we all need that corrective, right? I mean, how many days, if we really step back and notice for a minute, it's like, wait a minute. Started in the Spirit, but now I'm trying to do this thing on my own. So number one, it's live on the word of God. Jesus is going to pray to the Father. He's going to say, Father, sanctify them in the truth. He's going to say, your word is truth. So what it means is, okay, we're sanctified in the word of God. We're sanctified on the word of God. Moses is going to say in Deuteronomy 32, it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. What a statement. This word is your life. You don't live by bread alone, but you live by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord, Deuteronomy 8.3. That the health of the church even depends on, Colossians 3.16, the word of Christ richly dwelling within us. What a statement, richly dwelling in us. I have to ask yourself, okay, does the word of Christ richly dwell in me? Or do I just kind of snack on it from time to time? Do I just kind of like Skittles, just throw one in my mouth and then move on? Or is it something that richly dwells in me, something that I feast on? Scripture is a lamp to our feet, Psalm 119, 105. It gives light into darkness. It opens our eyes to reality. It illumines our view of God, sin, Christ, ourselves, other people. <coughs> Excuse me. So it's important as you're ministering to Amanda or Matthew that you realize, okay, my words don't give light. My words don't nourish their soul. The world's words don't give light, don't give nourishment. No, we have to be in the word of God. There has to be time in the word of God because it's the word that's going to give light. It's going to help Amanda and Matthew see God more clearly, understand reality more truthfully, nourish their soul 
It's a kind of roadmap, a kind of compass, a kind of guide that helps us. That's why if you go hiking, you know, every year when we were in Northern Virginia, there was some story in the Shenandoahs about somebody getting lost and dying. Every year we could count on it. Some tragic tale of, of a grown man or woman that decided to go hiking in the Shenandoahs and got lost and weren't found for a year. And so you think about if, you know, if you've ever been in a situation where you're out in the woods, it doesn't, you don't have to get far from the path to get lost. And when you're lost, every tree looks the same. Every hill looks the same. Every creek bed looks the same. It, if you don't have a map and a compass, it's trouble. Like how much more this whole world as a spiritual being, how much more what we're facing to live this life do we need a map and a compass? Scripture providing that map, the spirit being the compass in us that illumines us to it. And how many days do we go out into the world without those or just even worse, just walking around with our eyes closed, completely blinded? Provides perspectives and truths we need to navigate life on earth. Second Timothy three sixteen through 17. Teaches us how to live for the glory of God. Teaches us how to love others. Teaches us what to do with our time, what to do with food, with sex, with money, with every gift that God's given. God says, okay, here's the gift. Here's my word that explains how to use the gift, how to enjoy the gift. Like if I gave you a bomb for your birthday, but you've got to assemble it, and, but you have to. It's going to be really important for you to use in some project that we're going to go mining or something. So I give you this sort of bomb kit. Are you going to like pay attention to the directions more carefully than anything you've ever built in your life? I would hope so. So it could be a great gift, but if you don't like read the directions, like if you're just going to go out and use a bulldozer and just start hitting buttons, or you're going to get a job on a, like a nuclear submarine and you're going to work down with a reactor, are you just going to start hitting buttons? Well, I wonder if this is it. They say, hey, do this. And you're like, well, let's just start hitting stuff. Or are you going to be really clear on what the directions are? Well, how much more the gifts of God? He gives you the gift of food. He gives you the gift of sex. He gives you the gift of work. He gives you the gift of drink. He get, fill in the blank. And we just start throwing it around. When he says, no, I've given my word to help you understand what this is for where it's to fit in your life, how you're to use it in a way that is for my glory and your good. The word of God does that. The word of God reveals our hearts. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. It gives explanation and shape to human history. In his word, he reveals himself, his work, his words, his glory. And then his word actually does work in us. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. What a great statement. Received it as the word of God, and it's at work in you. It's doing something in you. So when you eat it in faith and trust it in faith and put it inside, God uses it to change you. <coughs> Number two, speaking to God in prayer. We're going to have to speed up a little bit here. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. That's one way we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, humbly, because we realize 
Okay, we need God. We're desperate for God. We cry out to God. We respond to his word by speaking to him. It's a relationship. It's a conversation. We put on new spiritual clothes, Colossians 3, 1 through 17. And yeah, you could just spend a whole month just dwelling on those 17 verses. What are we called by God's grace to put off in life? What does he call us to put on? And every day you get dressed, right? You get up out of bed. You put off what you slept in. You shower or do whatever you do. And then you, you put on clothes for the day. And so he uses this great image of, okay, the Christian life, you do that spiritually. That every day there's things you're going to put off. You're going to put off passions and impurities and evil desires and covetousness, which is idolatry. You're going to put on love. You're going to put on kindness. You're going to put on humility. You're going to put on meekness. And we need God's help to do it. That's why, back to the last point, we speak to him in prayer. Lord, help me put off and put on. But it also shows in the same way that changing clothes, this is a daily thing, sometimes multiple times a day. But yet it's even more important than our physical clothes. We're also going to live in humble repentance. We talked about this last week. Maintaining a posture of repentance before God, not seeing repentance just as this every now and then event when you do something really bad. But a posture of humble dependence on the Lord that acknowledges, okay, I'm a weak, frail, suffering sinner, redeemed by the grace of God that is constantly in needs of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness in life. Which is why when somebody actually comes to you and says, hey, you hurt me or offended me or did something wrong or this was sinful, should any of us be surprised? Yet why are we? They come to us and say, hey, what you said that was really hurtful and wrong. And we go, couldn't have been. Me? Are you sure it was me that said that? Because I, yeah, I don't misspeak very much. Are you sure you're not thinking of somebody else? Or maybe you're just crazy. I mean, we, we act as if we're shocked. Like, there's no way that could have come out of me. When really, if we believe what the Bible says, it's like, well, that sounds about right. Yeah, no, I don't remember, I didn't notice, but... I'm sure you're right on that. Knowing what's in here, it probably just came out or slipped out. Or if we're really honest, we do remember. We were there. We were present. We know what was said. We know what we felt. We know what happened. So living in humble repentance before God and others. Enduring hardships and suffering with joy. That's a part of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Where when trials come, when suffering comes, when he leads us into the wilderness where there's no water, there's no food, there's Amalekites attacking, we don't just instinctively grumble or complain. I don't know about you, but that's my reflexive response to pain, is grumbling. Yet sanctification is teaching us how to endure those things with joy, how to appreciate what God is doing. Be equipped and active in the body of Christ, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Just sanctification is actually something we do together as we serve one another, as we're served by one another, as we speak the truth and love to one another. Reflect upon and remember your cleansing from sin, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 19, which has this great list of these virtues that you're adding from one to the other. And if it's not happening, it's because you've forgotten your cleansing from your former sin. 
and evidence that we remember our salvation is actually change, growth. And that list sort of culminates in love, brotherly affection and then love. Walk in the spirit, not the flesh, Galatians 3, 1 through 6. We're perfected by the spirit, not the flesh. It means we avoid legalism and we walk in humble faith. We live in the spirit, not the flesh. Having begun by the spirit, we're not trying to perfect ourselves by the flesh. Then here's the passage I want us to kind of meditate on as we close and have some time for a conversation. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, if you want to turn there. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Why not? Well, though our outer self is wasting away, it's not a very rosy image, is it? Wasting away, decaying. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. There's the encouragement. Body going this way, spirit and soul going this way. For this light momentary affliction, I mean, think about how sort of corrective that is to all of us. So think about the worst imaginable pain you can endure over 10 years. And Paul's going to call it light momentary affliction. What he's referring to is just pain in your whole life. And yet compared to what he's about to say next, it's light. It's momentary. It's affliction. And it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we're not meant to use those kinds of words flippantly, like somebody's suffering in an agony, and we say, hey, it's light, it's momentary, don't worry about it. And we have to take time to learn what does that mean for there to be an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that's being worked out in us. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It's the great promise of sanctification in that passage. Though the outer form, the outer self, the body, it's, it's wasting away, it's decaying. But the inner person is being renewed day after day as the Father works in you and around you, as the Son works in you and around you, as the Spirit works in and around you, as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you're being renewed day by day. And he's using the light momentary affliction like a furnace to do that, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, which is why now we look not to the things that are seen, but unseen. And you could spend the rest of your lives just learning how to do that. To look to the unseen things, not to the seen things. For the things that are seen are transient. Things that are unseen are eternal. So God's word just talks in a way about change in our life, about transformation, that there's just nothing like it that compares in the whole world. And we'll never get to the bottom of it. We could spend the rest of our lives studying, understanding, relating to God in the process of change and never exhaust, you know, exhaust his graces and his mercies in it. Questions, comments, just thoughts before we wrap up? Got a few minutes. Yeah, Connor. So 
Yeah, I think some of the image there, you know, imagine coming to Mount Sinai and Moses is going to ascend the mountain and there's like fire and there's clouds and there's thick smoke, there's lightning, there's sounds happening. And he, there, he, there was fear and trembling. But every time he came down the mountain, what had happened? He was changing. Remember, his face was glowing. He had to veil it. Like, and so it's this sense of change happens by getting near to holy things. Change happens by drawing near to this God who is holy, who is a consuming fire. And so what he's saying is, is come confidently, come boldly, but come reverently. Don't come casually, don't come flippantly. And so just as Moses, there, he experienced fear and trembling on the mountain. And, and I think there's certainly this sense of, okay, there's the trembling of anticipation, there's the trembling of excitement, but I think the trembling there is a trembling of awe, fear, wonder. And so it's really that that's how change happens, is we're drawing near to God, and we should come reverently. And, and so I, I don't even think it's necessarily... Okay, you, you make yourself tremble. You just will. Um, you know, Isaiah in Isaiah 6, where he was called up into heaven, and whether in body or in a vision, he's going to see the Lord on his throne. And angels are flying around everywhere saying, holy, holy, holy. And the foundations of the temple tremble. It fills with smoke. And what does he say? Woe is me, for I am undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. And God's going to send an angel to take a coal from the altar to come over and touch his lips and to cleanse him. And so it's the start of change in Isaiah's life. It's part of change in his life, but he understands where he is. And so it's just this beautiful picture of a fear that draws you, of a trembling you can't resist as you draw near to this person who's going to transform and change you. Yeah, even um, it's a Psalm 130 that says, but there is forgiveness with you so that you may be feared. Like, what a statement. If you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who would stand? But there's forgiveness with you so that you may be feared. We don't usually think about that, right? That forgiveness leads to fear. I mean, it leads to reverence. It's like you're in a room. You know you're a guilty sinner. You're in a, or you're in a rather, a courtroom. And there's all these people standing around and sitting around, and you just know you're guilty. And then somebody stands up and looks at you and says, forgiven. You're forgiven. You know there's only one person in the room who can do that. Who's the only person in the room that can say that? God. So now you know who to fear. He's just identified himself. So that when Jesus now comes and he forgives sins, the Pharisees shouldn't be saying just, who does he think he is that he can forgive? Only God can forgive sins. Exactly which is why you ought to fear and tremble because you're sitting in the room with God, God in the flesh. There's forgiveness with him so that he would be feared, so he would be revered, awed, worshiped. Um, so good question. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this good work that you've begun in us. We thank you for the promise that you will complete this work in us. We thank you, Father, for your work in and around us. We thank you, Son, for your work in and around us. We thank you for sending the Spirit to work in and around us. We pray that you would make us good instruments of change in each other's lives, that you would help us speak the truth in love as a church, that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling for your glory, for the good of our brothers and sisters, and for 
our transformation. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.